Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I am Kieran Mulvaney, joined by my co-host Eric Raskin. Uh, Eric, another Cinco de Mayo weekend has passed and it's a reminder of that Cinco de Mayo fight we both attended I think seven years ago when Canelo Alvarez beat Amir Khan and of course the highlight of the week when I co-hosted the weigh-in at the T-Mobile Arena with Mario Lopez who kept calling me Kiernan. <laughs> yes. um, alas, I look back on the pictures and the Facebook memories from seven years ago, and, well, Mario Lopez still looks exactly the same, or if anything, even younger. Yeah. I, as we have established, have aged like milk. <laughs> yeah, well, look, if the comparison point is Mario Lopez, we have all <laughs> aged like milk. He's, he's, he's one of the Paul Rudd all-stars, the celebrities who don't age, I think... Uh, Jennifer Lopez is on that team. Uh, Lenny Kravitz, maybe. Um, but uh, you know what? Th- there's more to life than aging well. Uh, you, Kieran, or Kiernin, uh, you have <laughs> Mario Lopez crushed in one regard. You uh-huh. have way better taste in boxing podcast co-hosts than he uh, ever yeah. did. <laughs> I mean, he has you in looks, money, fame, being in a position in life to not bother learning how to pronounce away in co-host's name and get away with it. He has you in all those regards, but but you have the edge in the category that matters. Yeah, well, interesting how you were able to make it all about you, but <laughs> hey, that's, that's what you got to do. I'm not making it all about me. I'm also subtly making it about someone Mario Lopez someone else. hosted a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, the funny thing is I remember about that, not only that he's got it on me and not having to be bothered to actually learn a co-host's name, but... With about two minutes to go until we went live on that show, he hadn't shown up. And um, <laughs> Tammy Cotel, who was running the show, right. was like, Kieran, you're just going to have to host the whole show. And, and of course, you know, they, they'd given us very specific in terms of wardrobe, like, you know, no, I was wearing a uh, jacket and tie, I think, and right. um, no T-shirts or anything like that. Mario shows up about two minutes before we go live. Wearing a T-shirt, plugging right. something that he's involved oh in. Oh, my God. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, for an assortment of reasons, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, go that route. But the the main thing is just you're not the type to show up with two minutes to go. That's that right. doesn't fit into uh, the way the way that you like to live your life. Yeah, but it, that is correct. Yes. Just ask all the airports where I where I show up <laughs> four and a half hours before a flight. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, this week on the podcast, uh, for which we have been preparing, um, we have a Showtime Championship boxer triple header from the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas to preview. So we'll dig into that in detail and make our picks. Uh, I will be giving Eric both his next top five challenge and the round of the fight game where I'll be testing his knowledge. Uh, we have lots of outside the ring news to cover, including the latest on both Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia. And we'll welcome a first time guest, but a longtime friend, Lance Pugmire who is this year's winner of the BWAA's Fleischer Award. But first, Eric, let's go to Guadalajara, at least virtually and metaphorically, uh, where on Saturday night, Canelo Alvarez delivered a victory for his hometown fans, but he couldn't provide the knockout that they wanted against the severely blooded but extremely game John Ryder. Yep, Canelo seemed on his way to a knockout after he dropped Ryder with a 1-2 late in the fifth round, or perhaps on his way to a corner stoppage when Ryder's nose was gushing blood in round seven. But Alvarez ended up having to go the distance for the third fight in a row, uh, winning by scores of 120-107 to and 118-109 twice. I thought Ryder clearly won round 12, 
but I didn't quite find any other rounds to give him. Uh, He was tough as all hell, but never a threat to Canelo. In the end, I suspect if we remember this fight at all, we'll remember it for Ryder's toughness and not really for anything Canelo did. Kieran, what did you think of what you saw out of Canelo? Can you take much away from this when he never really had to get creative at all in order to win? Yeah, I mean, that's the issue there, isn't it? I mean, I think if you're a Canelo fan, the positives to take from this are that he dominated a very good fighter, a fighter who's shown that he's on the level of Callum Smith and Daniel Jacobs, among others. Um, And he not only dominated him, he knocked him down. He had him seemingly ready to go in, was it round eight or something like that, when he really had him rocked again? Like you said, he had him, he had probably broke his nose. And he did all of that without, it seemed to me, without ever really moving out of, say, third gear. He he never looked like he he was really pushing it. Um, You know, he was just a class above. Uh, The guys on the course said they thought that he showed signs of slowing down over the final few rounds. I'm not entirely sure that that's quite as true this time. I I thought he paced himself fairly well. And if Ryder maybe did a smidge better over the last quarter of the bout, I think that's because he saved himself to do that and Canelo knew it was in the bag. Um, I I do think that maybe the styles of both fighters perhaps made for a difficult night for both of them. Like Ryder being squat and powerful and compact probably made him the wrong kind of fighter to have much impact on Canelo, who we've seen tends to struggle mainly with the longer fighters who, who, who can box him at range. Um, but equally, I think the fact that he's so compact like that rider made it difficult for Canelo to break through. Um, you just don't get to just knock everybody out. Winning 10 rounds against a decent contender is pretty impressive. Um, against that, you do wonder if two or three years ago, Canelo would have let Ryder escape that fifth round. Right. Or whatever round it was, the eighth, that he had that he had him rocked again. Um He's made a career out of being like steady and methodical Canelo, but he just didn't appear to even try to put his foot on the accelerator uh, at all in those moments when we would expect him to. But against that, he also clearly wanted to get him out of there. He looked frustrated at times that he didn't. But it was his first fight back since hand surgery. Um, There are times where you just have to give the opponent credit for hanging in there. And, And I think probably mostly this is one of those times. But I do wonder if the signs are there. And Ryder himself even noted them at the post-fight press conference that Canelo is starting to slip just a bit. Not, I feel like it's not dissimilar to what his old rival Gennady Golovkin began to show. It's sort of around the time of his fight with Kel Brook. Maybe that little bit slower. Um, maybe the gas tank doesn't last the full fight quite as well. Maybe it takes longer for the punches to, to, to have an effect. It's small amounts, it's subtle, and like his biggest fans will absolutely get really upset at the suggestion that he's slipping, in the same way that I would sometimes get messages from Golovkin fans that, was I mad at Gennady or something, when we would be talking about how he was slipping. Right. It's happening. It's not like, but he's still way, way, way above the likes of, you know, the John Ryder, who's right there on like the second level of, of super, super middleweights. So it, it, I don't think he's in very grave danger um, here of necessarily being knocked off by somebody who he shouldn't be knocked off by. But I think maybe bit by bit, he's starting to show the wear and tear of, of a long and, and, and tough career. But even though I still think he can, he can beat just most people um, at 168, you do wonder... OK, 
okay, he said he wants to go to 175 and, and fight Bivol again, and it has to be at 175. You know, can he climb that mountain again? I mean, let's turn to that for a second. I mean, he is insisting that he wants that rematch. Can you talk yourself into that looking any different the second time around, perhaps with the added information of what you saw on Saturday night? I mean, what is the fight then that you most want to see for Canelo in September, particularly if you agree with me that maybe he is starting the 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 road to the end of his career? Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with that. Some of what I'll have to say here, you know, echoes both your thoughts and I guess John Ryder's thoughts. I hadn't seen his post-fight comments, but uh, regarding where Canelo is right now. In terms of whether it can look any different the second time with Bivol, if anything, I can see Bivol Canelo 2 going a little worse for Canelo based on this mm. performance from Saturday. I mean, it is a bad style matchup for Canelo against a taller, longer, highly disciplined boxer. And yeah, these last two fights for Canelo against Ryder and Golovkin, to me, they served as confirmation of what the Bivol fight suggested, that, that this all-time great fighter has started to slow down. I think we'll look back and say 2021 was the last year of his prime. Mm. Um, he had a great run. Uh, you know, his prime started, I'd say, in 2015, maybe with like the James Kirkland fight and then the winner mm. for Cotto. Once, you know, he'd sort of processed and learned from the Mayweather fight and a year or two later was hitting his prime. And his prime ran through 2021. Uh, it's a good long stretch, but, you know, he's 32 years old and he's had over 60 pro fights. And... Seems like it's going to be a struggle just to maintain this level that he's currently at from fight to fight. Massive respect to John Ryder for the cojones. Yeah. Um, but if he couldn't stop John Ryder, if he could only really hurt him once or twice in 36 minutes, then he's not quite the athlete he once was, not quite the explosive puncher he once was. Um, but, you know, I, I guess this all comes with the caveat that we didn't see him pushed on Saturday night. He could get away with being flat-footed. He mm. seemed not to be giving defense much of a thought because Ryder's punches didn't concern him. But, um, you know, still, he was, he was undeniably slowing down the last two or three rounds. Um, I, I just can't make a case in my mind for him beating Bevel in a rematch short of Canelo lands a perfect body shot or something like that. Mm. Um so you should have inferred by now that a Bivol fight is not the one that I want for Canelo in September. Also because Bivol and Better BM need to friggin' get it on, and this right. stands in the way of that. Um, I'll go the obvious route, but it's just my honest answer. The fight I want to see is Canelo versus David Benavides. Uh, big pay-per-view event, and pretty damn close to a 50-50 fight. Um, two different styles, different builds. I have no idea exactly how them match up with each other, but it seems they'd be crossing paths at the right time for that fight to be as competitive as possible. And, and I'd be curious to see whether Benavidez is any more cautious than usual with a counterpuncher like Canelo yeah. in front of him. I applaud Canelo's desire to reverse his recent defeat, but it's not a rematch anyone is dying to see. And uh, maybe if he'd scored a spectacular knockout of John Ryder, people would be able to talk themselves into it. But he didn't. So eh, I'd much rather see Canelo Benavidez. Yeah. Um, a few fights on Saturday's undercard in Guadalajara worth talking about. In the co-feature, flyweight titleist Julio Cesar Martinez rallied from a somewhat slow start to drop Ronald Batista in round seven and stop him in the 11th. 
Before that, perhaps a mild upset in a very good fight, as Steve Spark, in his first fight since his memorable disqualification win over Montana Love, lost a one-point split decision to Gabriel Golaz Valenzuela, and opening the pay-per-view card, former light heavyweight champ Oleksandr Gvozdik scored the second win of his comeback, stopping Ricards Bolotniks in the sixth round. Uh, any quick thoughts on any of these, Kieran? Uh, just some quick thoughts. Uh, Martinez Batista was a bit of a strange fight, I thought, actually. Martinez just, you know, you alluded to this, just didn't quite look himself for a few rounds, I thought, and until he really got rolling. I don't know if he just wasn't warmed up or was just having a hard time figuring out Batista, but then when he got going and got into the groove, uh, he looked much more like the Julio Cesar Martinez we're used to seeing. Um, I thought Steve Spark quite clearly outpointed Venezuela personally. Um, I I didn't think it was even that close, even with the knockdown. Hmm. Uh, But, you know, the fact that he had it in him, Valenzuela, to recover from that rough round and, and not be looking good and to and to then come back and drop Spark, it was clearly the difference maker on the cards there. Uh, and maybe it was just a lot closer than, than I thought it was because all three judges seemed to think it was more or less in that same ballpark. Um, and Vojtek, I thought, looked good. He looked solid and strong. Uh, I thought his boxing skills and even his timing don't seem to have diminished at all in his absence. He actually looked more solid um, then I remember him being, to be pretty honest. Um, I don't see him doing any better in a rematch with Berbiev than I see Canelo in a rematch with Bivol. Right. And, and I don't I don't think Vostik is on the Bivol level either, but he's absolutely on course. He has it in him to put himself on that next level, uh, like heavyweights, so if he wants to have another run with it. Uh, good performance by him. But all in all, I, I don't know what it was. That all in all, just... The undercard and the, I don't know whether it was the presentation or the production or just the nature of the fights or what it was, but uh, I was a mildly underwhelmed by the entire card, I must say. I think I know what it was. It was too much Celestino Ruiz, right? <laughs> a lot of Celestino Ruiz. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, I, I have to talk specifically about that knockdown that he missed in the Martinez fight. Uh, I, I just can't for the life of me figure out how he missed that. It, it was clear as day. Hard punch. Fighter goes down, knockdown. Like, this wasn't that far from calling Joe Frazier's knockdown of Muhammad Ali in the 15th <laughs> round a slip. Uh, and, uh, and and I just have to share our uh, DM messaging uh, right. with, with the listeners. We had already exchanged some notes on dreading seeing Ruiz get so much work on this card. And after he missed the knockdown, I messaged you, Celestino Ruiz is Celestino Ruizing again, except autocorrect changed it to Celestino ruining again. And uh, you know what? Autocorrect, you win this round. <laughs> well played, artificial intelligence. Um, I wasn't scoring the Valenzuela Spark fight carefully, so no opinions here on the decision, okay. but it certainly was a fun action fight. Um, it was. And as for Gvozdek, I had a similar observation. He looks a little more muscle bound than I yeah. remember. I also thought. He looked maybe a tad slower, and and those two could be related. But yeah, he looks fine. Looks like he could still be a contender. Um, I'm not seeing anything to make me pick him to beat the elite at 175. But this this certainly isn't Sergio Martinez fighting on. This is right. a guy who's clearly still a capable fighter, but we won't really know for sure till he steps up the competition by one or two more notches. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's turn now to this week's guest, who remarkably, I think, has not been on the podcast before, which is a significant oversight on our part. Uh, He was, for a long time, the boxing writer for the Los Angeles Times, and then for The Athletic and USA Today. Uh, He's currently uh, doing some work for PPV.com, 
well, he isn't selling houses. Uh, he is also the most recent recipient of the Boxing Writers Association of America Nat Fleischer Award for Excellence in Boxing Journalism. Our good friend, Lance Pugmire. Lance, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and congrats on that Fleischer Award, Lance. That's, that's great. Uh, without blowing your whole acceptance speech on us, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what winning this award means to you, what entering this fraternity of Fleischer winners means. Oh, it means so much. And thank you so much for uh, mentioning it. Um, you know, I think the thing that struck me is as I was kind of like going back over my career and looking at the list of people who have won Fleischer Awards is that how so many of them have touched my own life. I mean, I grew up in Phoenix, basically in grade school, reading Norm Frontheim. Mm -hmm. And then I and then I moved to Orange County and I read Mark Wicker. And then I was, mm -hmm. you know, raised uh, at the LA Times by the hired by the sports editor Bill Dwyer. All these guys are Fleischer winners. It's and it's it's amazing how I really did kind of like lean on their example. Um to really shape my own, you know, reporting uh, acumen, I would say, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think the, the thing about the, um, the Fleischer, it's such an honor to, um, you know, the, the type of work that I always strive to bring to the readers, which is, you know, great access from the most important uh, fighters that were out there, uh, but also honest coverage. I mean, there were times that I know that I've, you know, had, uh, you know, my, some of my relationships in the sport have been weakened by my pursuit of the truth. But I knew that my readers demanded that and I was not going to sell out or be a quote unquote access reporter. Um, I always wanted to be more than that. And if I if I hurt some feelings along the way, you know, I don't feel great about that. But at the end of the day, I feel like I had that obligation to my readers to serve them first and fully. And so from that standpoint, winning the Fleischer, if, if that's what it's a, a, an award for, then I'm very, very proud. That's that's great prioritizing, because I think uh, honest coverage, uh, I don't want to call it a dying art, but uh, a diminishing art, perhaps. Uh, so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I just want to say one other thing, too. I think that I just wanted to say that, you know, for me, it was such a, uh, so many sacrifices you make as a family man of being away from your family to cover these fights and be there. I can't, um, you know, have this uh, this award without noting the sacrifices that my family made to allow me to um, be away from them and to uh, work so hard to try to uh, bring all these stories to life. Mm. Um, let's uh, let's turn to a couple of significant recent fights. Uh, first of all, Saturday night, Guadalajara, um, Canelo Alvarez comprehensively outpointed a very game John Ryder. Um, I want to know, first of all, like, what was your general take on the fight? And, and Eric and I have, were just discussing whether Canelo has passed his peak now and is on the back nine or maybe even the final couple of holes of, of his career. Where, where do you stand on that? I mean, he has been a professional fighter since, what, the age of 15, right? And it's mm -hmm. a long career. I mean, I know he's, you know, 32, but I mean, it's he's been around for, for quite a while. And... Look, I think the thing that we're you guys are looking at when you say that, and the same thing that I'm looking at is like in the last three fights, he hasn't been strong in the as the final rounds in the second half of these fights. And so, what is going on there? And you know, obviously, you know, he had this uh, hand surgery that he went through. So, like, is the body starting to feel all of the pain of of the sport? 
And, and um, you know, I, I don't think that he's on the back nine, but I think as he goes into a very ominous point of his career right now, where his choices are, and he's, you know, being bullheaded about it. I mean, it kind of shows what his mentality is. And he is a, he is a true champion. But the fact that he wants to fight Dimitri Bivol at 175 pounds instead of forcing him to come down to 168, which is a better weight for Canelo, is staggering to me. And then the other choice would be David Benavides, who's the younger, stronger, you know, bigger man. So both of those, both of those fights are going to be tough, difficult tests for Canelo. Um, would I pick him as the favorite in either bout? Maybe Benavides, but definitely not Bivol. So where, wherever he is, if it is the true back nine, Karen, as you're saying, I think that's going to be fully revealed if he goes up to fight Bivol at 175. Mm. And Canelo doesn't seem like the kind of guy, you know, some guys are happy to run out the string a little bit uh, in their careers. Canelo seems to me the kind of guy who once he knows it's not quite there, he's going to be done, isn't he? He's not going to stick around. Yeah, I wouldn't think that he would either. Um, he, he is, I mean, just the, the fact that he wants that fight at 175 speaks volumes about mm. what his mentality is. And no one's going to talk him out of it, even if it's, uh, you know, the wrong uh, direction for his, for his career. So, you know, what he, what he does next and how he proceeds is going to be uh, very interesting. I just thought that, look, after he knocked down Ryder in the fifth round and Ryder was actually kind of like looking to his corner, like, should I get up or not? And the fact that he ended up winning some rounds late in the fight was not the best of looks for Canelo. And it does kind of like open up this discussion about where Canelo stands in his career. It's a very valid point. All right, let's talk about a, another recent fight uh, involving some guys who were very much on the front nine. Uh, two weeks ago, you were at Davis Garcia, as we were. Uh, we find out we found out afterward that the pay-per-view numbers for that fight were through the roof. I'm curious, Lance, do you, do you take this as a sign that boxing is in better health than people think, or, or was the success of this fight some sort of wild outlier? I think that it's a reflection of, you know, what we've always known and I, I, what I long talk about in my stories is that these promoters need to break down their promotional walls and make the fights that the fans want to see. I mean, there's so many fights that m me and you guys could sit down and script that would revive the health of the sports. Clearly, that was one of them. And when you make the fight, look at the even in even in the days of piracy for pay-per-view. Look at what those numbers were. I mean, everyone was so happy and thrilled about the fact that you had this um, social media dynamo and Ryan Garcia against this great talent and Gervonta Davis, who has really captured uh, the urban market on a level we haven't seen since Floyd Mayweather Jr. Um, it, it was it was a match made in heaven, and I'm glad you know I'm glad that it happened. I'm glad that it happened for the sport, but it needs to happen more frequently than it does. And if this is not the goading that you know the sports leaders can recognize i mean i don't know what they need what more they need to see yeah and, and what's your take on, on tank as a fighter like um you know how, how likely is he to be the guy who ends up regarded as the best of this era i mean there's devin haney there's shakur stevenson a uh, bunch of guy talented guys do you have a sense of whether we're going to end up looking back and say this was the javante davis era it, you know, it definitely can happen. I think that it, it's really up to Gervonta Davis, right? I mean, we know what happened uh, recently with the, uh, with the court ruling. Um, and he himself has said, my, my biggest enemy, maybe my, you know, the, my, my biggest foe is myself. 
And if he can, you know, keep it on the straight and narrow and kind of like take a look at where, what he's accomplished um, in spite of that and where he is right now, if he can just sort of like finally once and for all clean up that act, I think that he, it definitely can be, but you know, Devin Haney is also a, a superior talent as is Shakur Stevenson, as you mentioned. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think what we want out of all of this is for these guys to be able to fight each other again and let's see how this looks and let's see what this does for the future of boxing to really uh, propel it back to where it deserves to be. Um, let's take a look back at some highlights of this Fleischer winning journalism career of yours. Um, simple question. Uh, give us your number one all-time fight that you've covered in person ringside. Wow. You know, I, I hate to hedge on this at all, but there's probably a couple that really come to mind. I think my favorite fight just from, and you guys know this, like sometimes it's not just about the fight, but it's about mm. fight week and everything like that. The whole experience, my favorite fight was Anthony Joshua versus uh, Vladimir Klitschko mm. in Wembley Stadium, 90,000 people. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the other of you guys were there. Karen I was, was there, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, it was, I mean, it was amazing. And Karen, uh, I know that like me and Dan Rayfield uh, had this incredible experience where over in the UK, uh, leading up to the fight, they give one-on-ones with the fighters. And so what they do is they separate, they gave Anthony Joshua to all the UK writers. And then they said, okay, for all the Americans, you guys are going to get Anthony Joshua now one-on-one as well. And it was just me and Dan. And we got such mm. great stuff from Anthony uh, Joshua right on the uh, brink of the fight. It was outstanding. And then, you know, to see the, uh, Vladimir and his uh, brother Vitaly work out together uh, leading up to that fight. And then what that evening was with both men, hitting the canvas and then uh, Joshua really kind of like ending the Klitschko reign that let's be honest, was not probably the best thing that ever happened to boxing as well. Um, that was a great fight. I, I think trumped only in the ring by uh, uh, Fury Wilder three in Las Vegas, which mm. was such an epic event. I mean, to have the heavyweights battle like that, I will certainly never forget it. There was so much on the line for both men. And they both really kind of revealed their heart in the fullest way possible. And, and I'm right there with you on Joshua Klitschko. I think in terms of my, uh, and exactly in the, in, in the context in which you described it, as an entire fight experience yeah. from beginning to end. And it was for me, it was the first time I'd ever been to Wembley Stadium. And of course, I grew up in England and, you know, Wem- Wembley has that kind of legendary feel about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, everything, yeah, uh, the nature of the fight, the size of the crowd, where it was. And like you said, that build up. I, I got AJ alone in his locker room as well. And, oh, and yeah. it was just, yeah. And he was a fantastic interview, isn't he? Absolutely. So, yeah. So, yeah, no, I definitely agree with you there in terms of like an overall experience. Unfortunately, if you remember, I had to write with my laptop on my lap. Literally, <laughs> oh, yeah. Eddie Hearn gave us no tables. And I'm going to call him <laughs> out for that. And then the Wi Fi was gone by the time the fight was over. So, we had to like scurry to this back room to file. Other than that, it was an awesome experience. Oh, yeah. I think I, oh, that's right. I had to go and file in the truck. That's right, because because there was no, that's right, because there was no Wi-Fi ringside, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, so Kieran, when they break the media into the the British and the American, do you get to, like, double dip and just pop in on both? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I I accentuate the British accent for for one of them. So, so Lance, I, I have two separate but related questions for you here. The, the again, sort of looking back on some some all time stuff that stands out for you over your career. First, who's your all time favorite boxer to interview? Mm. 
Very good question. Um, I mean, there's so many that I have talked to. Um, obviously, one of the guys that jumps out that I thought was just so sincere and so open about his life at every single time I talked to him was Leo Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I mean, I, I've grown to really uh, care about the guy. I mean, he's such a, he's such a honest, uh, open, open human being for sure. And the battles that he's had to do and to take out care of his family, to help his father through his cancer fight is so, uh, so sincere. I, I, I think that, you know, the times that I've talked to Tyson Fury, what a great quote he's been. I wish I could interview him more, a little bit more. Um, but I think as far as access and being able to um, talk to someone as their career was really uh, spiraling upward, and that was Manny Pacquiao. I mean, Manny was always so good to me, even when he got into trouble for making some comments uh, against gays mm. that he shouldn't have made when he was over in the Philippines. When he came back, he said, you know, um, it's fine if, it, if Lance meets me there at Wildcard and we can talk because I know that he'll at least treat the story uh, with an honest touch. And I've always appreciated that. Clearly, I was going to be, uh, you know, we were going to be calling out Manny in that story. Um, but you know, he's always, he's always been there for me. He's always given me the time that I've, uh, needed to really tell the story as best as possible. And even as, you know, back in the days when he was still like making strides in his English, um, you know, he's just been such an open book and so honest. And I really appreciate that type of access where I can really Mm. give the readers the full story of, of who this guy is. Okay. And same question, non-boxer division. So trainers, promoters, et cetera, who, who's been your favorite to interview there? I mean, this is, this is going to go to like some, some of these bias uh, theories that some people have, but I mean, how can you not enjoy speaking to Bob Arum? Yeah, I mean, so. he's like, he is so, so honest, so bluntly honest about all the things that are going on. And sometimes even when he's like spinning something, He's just so entertaining and, you know, he's, he's seen and done everything in the sport, you know, from all lead forward. So his perspective is just like a, a gold mine to tap into each and every time you sit down with him, you never know where a conversation is headed. And for me, um, he, and he's, he's, he's vibrant. I mean, he, he knows all the things that are going on, not just within top rank, but all of the promotional companies. So, and politics and whatever else you want to talk about. He's there for you. So I appreciate that to no end. He has this reputation among people who don't know him of being, you know, a sort of inveterate liar because he can say one thing one day and something entirely different the next week. But I, I've never believed that. I actually believe that in that instant in which he is talking to you and saying these things that directly contradicts what he just said, <laughs> he genuinely believes it. Yes, he does. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's part of his charm. You know, as long as you know that that's part of the game. Um, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a great conversation and you're always left feeling like as, as if you've been enriched a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, final question. And, and it's sort of like a broad one here. And Eric actually touched on part of it. It's a very strange time in the media industry as a whole. Um, it's fascinating if you're an observer of it, mildly terrifying if you're earning your living from it. Um, you know, I alluded in the intro to the fact that you've moved on from full-time sports writing. Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about, I guess, the state of boxing writing or boxing media and perhaps sports journalism more generally, given that you did decide to move on to an entirely different career um, a- after a very length- lengthy journalism career. What, what is your thought now that you're a, a slight bit distant from it? Yeah, no, I mean, it has changed. It has changed. I, uh, you know, I obviously having worked at the LA times for so long, 
I spoke to the, um, I believe he's the culture reporter for the LA Times, and he wrote on the fight, uh, Garcia Davis. Uh, he filed a story, I think it was like about a few days after the fight ran. And I just, hmm. I, I think that times have changed. Like, that's not, that's not the era that we grew up in, right? I mean, we... We covered a fight week. We covered all of the events around fight week. And then we wrote this, you know, uh, feature stories leading up to the fight, covered the fight, wrote the fight story that night. And that's the way it was. But um, the other thing is, too, I've spent some time working for Fight Hype, the, vid the, you know, the video reporting company. And, I, you know, some of my, some of my friends who were over there, and they're right. They're, they're, they're saying this is the way it is right now. Like mm -hmm. video, video is first. Print is like a distant second. And... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not our world, but I've always said this, uh, and I think it allowed me to uh, survive through my journalism career for so long, is that if you're not willing to adapt, you're going to die. And so, yeah. you know, look, I mean, I, 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 I take a lot of uh, pleasure and I really enjoy uh, my time working with Fight Hype. If we need to bring the interviews, you know, to the video in the video form and just allow the, the athletes to speak with our own questions kind of like bringing them along. I'm fine with that. Um, it's just, a, it's, it's just, you know, different times. Like what happened with me, uh, Karen is, you know, um, I was working at the athletic, uh, which was a great company earning, you know, more money in this business than I've ever earned. In fact, I got bought a couple of investment properties in Arizona mm. and by going through that experience and then meeting my uh, now fiance, Sandy Tanner, you know, she told me, she said, you know, you love real estate so much she's a realtor. She said, you should maybe just kind of like pick away at trying to get your uh, real estate uh, license. And so at night, I, um, after I, after the athletic uh, and I parted ways, I, at night when I was working at USA Today, I would just start plugging away on taking these uh, real estate tests. And it came to the point in November where I passed the exam. And then right after that, USA Today had another uh, real gouging of uh, reporters. And so I said, you know, enough is enough. I'm going to uh, make this turn. Someone is telling me to make this turn in my career. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going for it. You know, I've always believed in myself. I've always believed in my abilities. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy helping people. And so for me, real estate was a perfect transition for me to go full time from journalism to, uh, to this new venture that I am really loving. And while still keeping my toe in, in boxing reporting, because look, <laughs> I love it so much. And I'm so happy to uh, be able to tell these stories uh, as I've always have for years. I imagine there's some certain similarities, right? And that between real estate and journalism, and you've got a series of discrete projects. You're desperately hoping you get paid, <laughs> <You're> right? <laughs> Something becomes all consuming for a while and then you move on. There are some transferable yes. skills. Yes, it very much is. It very much is, and I and I think about this all the time. When I there's a there's a uh, there's a skill in real estate, or you know something that you need to do. There's uh, realtors need to do called door knocking, where you just basically go door to door, and say, you know, like, hey, how are you doing? Um, is there do you have any interest in um, uh, listing your home, or you know, have you thought about moving, whatever? And a lot of realtors don't like doing that. I love it. I mean, I love mm -hmm. talking to people. I love hearing their stories. And uh, sometimes I'll be like 20 minutes at a door and it's like, hey, you got to, you know, you got to move on to the next one. But um, it's very enjoyable for me. I've always loved that. And so um, um, I am I'm definitely relishing this this turn in my career. And uh, now that things are really uh, sort of kicking in as we head into the uh, 
to the hot summer season. It's very exciting. As, as long as you are uh, keeping a, a, a toe in the media game, I do have to correct something you said, though, Lance. You said video is one, print is two. Everyone knows audio is one, video uh, two, <laughs> print three is, yeah, is the yeah, correct yeah. Uh, ranking there. There you go. You guys have you guys have understood it as well. So I mean, <laughs> we're the the bottom line is is we're, we're capable uh, of trying new things, and um, you know, as long as long as we do that, you know, we can still cover the sport as thoroughly as we, we always have and, you know, give the viewers, readers, listeners what they want. All right. And we're glad you're sticking around at least a little bit in the sport and hopefully we'll see you ringside at, who knows, maybe there's a nice new highly anticipated matchup that's going to be taking place in Las Vegas sometime soon. And we'll see you ringside there. We'll be there. Okay. Matey. Lance, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. All right, that was fun. Our our thanks again to Lance. Uh, good good chatting with him. Uh, what a good guy. And uh, yeah. I, I'm glad though that he doesn't live in uh, my particular area neighborhood. I, I don't I don't take kindly to realtors uh, ringing my doorbell <laughs> and starting up random conversations with me, especially ones that could last twenty minutes. That's that's not my style. I wouldn't. I tell you, in this country, you, you could get shot trying to just. <laughs> knock on somebody's I mean, people are getting shot from knocking on the wrong door right, I'm, right. I, I might do that in finland but <laughs> not the finnish well, people like people knocking on their door either but still right. I, I don't know about that well maybe he's a, lance, he's a brave man maybe lance should go uh sell some houses in finland why not yeah, maybe mm-hmm. 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 okay maybe we, <laughs> let's get back to some boxing i guess <laughs> um uh let's dig into this week's news uh, and we just got lance's thoughts uh, on uh, tank davis and ryan garcia Our news main event concerns major post-fight developments for each of them. Uh, The true main event here is Tank's sentencing for his 2020 hit and run, and in an upset, the judge did not end up giving him prison time. Davis, who pleaded guilty on four counts, was sentenced to 90 days of home detention, ordered to attend a Mothers Against Drunk Driving program, and given 200 hours of community service that cannot be related to boxing, uh, and three years of supervised probation. Uh, Meanwhile, we learned just after recording last week's podcast that Ryan Garcia has parted ways with trainer Joe Goosen after three fights. Kieran, let me get your quick thoughts on that and and whether Garcia seems to you to be making a mistake. And then dig into the tank news a little. Did he get off perhaps too easy in terms of learning a lesson? And, And how good is this outcome for boxing fans since Davis presumably will fight at least one more time now in 2023? Uh, actually, I'll take the Davis news first because okay. it is the more serious topic. Um, th- my initial reaction was surprised that he didn't wind up in jail, but um, I guess the, the prosecution had actually asked for less initially and, and had been on the verge of, of coming to a plea agreement. But um, one of the victims, who is a pregnant woman who'd been injured in the accident, objected to the terms and and wanted him to get a greater punishment and i don't know how that works whether that varies from state to state that a victim in this kind of thing can object to a plea agreement or or whatever but um but anyway so i guess that what the judge handed down was more than the state had initially asked for and reading her comments was pretty clear that the judge was not happy with davis like at one point i guess he shook his head or grimaced when she said in response to a request uh, a question from his attorney that no he could not box or go to the gym during his house arrest um which was be spending at coach calvin's house by the way Hmm. um and when he did that she let him have it and said look if you don't like this you can serve your time in jail because they have a gym there 
Um, right. So she's clearly unhappy with his lack of remorse. She specifically mentioned that. So I, I ended up having the impression that may, maybe some legal minds out there can correct me, but I got the impression that she was to some extent constrained by what the state had requested, but that she absolutely sees the sentence she'd handed down as, as very much a, a last chance and, and an opportunity to turn his life around. Um, so, yeah, I, I have no idea about appropriate or common sentences for this kind of crime, but I certainly didn't get the impression that the judge was going to go in any way easy on him. And uh, I hope the tank realizes he's probably in the last chance saloon right now. But I also can't imagine, like, if he is going to spend his time with, with Coach Calvin, I can't imagine Coach Calvin not reminding him of that every right. single day of the next 90, right? Uh, right. Uh, um, uh, and obviously, though, for boxing fans, it's great in that Davis will end up getting his punishment for this. Um, there's still a restitution hearing still to come. So I think he's probably going to end up having to pay these people some money as well mm. that he injured. Um so he will still have he will have done his time he will have faced the consequences uh, of that activity of what he did of that accident and will be free to to continue although he should know also he's still quite over from yet he's still got a court date ahead in broward county florida this month concerning that domestic assault case from late last year even though the victim sort of said she didn't want it to proceed uh, it's still going ahead as a criminal case at least through this next hearing so he's not exactly out of the woods yet um but yeah hopefully this does encourage him to turn his life around and and make the changes that he needs to make as coach calvin said that he was comfortable or confident that he would do and and be able to focus on his boxing career and that's going to be better for his boxing career as well of course um if he's able to get that kind of focus um it all makes the ryan garcia news pale a little bit in comparison right. um joe goosen appeared on our friend dan Raphael of espn's podcast <laughs> um and he said you know, look, everything was still really cool between him and Ryan, that he still loves Ryan. But given what Joe had said to us during fight week about their relationship and notwithstanding the fact that boxers leaving trainers as a part of boxing, I'm sure that hurt Joe. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Uh, and I don't think it's the correct decision at all. Garcia didn't lose that fight because of Joe Goosen. I'm not sure he could have won with any trainer, but not listening to Joe probably hastened his end, to be yeah. honest. Um by boxing standards, Ryan Garcia's had it pretty easy. He's had money behind him from day one, developed a fan base because he's good looking and social media savvy, and he's proved he's a real fighter too. You know, he got up when he got knocked down by Davis. You know, he he got up against Luke Campbell and won. But the knock on him has always been that he reads his press clippings a bit too much, that he believes his hype a bit too much. Maybe doesn't devote himself to training quite enough. And and that last one, as much as anything, was long rumored to be the reason. He left the Renosos or the Renosos left him. Um, I think this is an important inflection point in Ryan's career. I think what happens now is on him, not on a trainer, on him. I think he's he's taken a lot of criticism, some of which, as we've discussed, I think is quite unfair, uh, some of which is perhaps valid. He's got to learn from the criticism that he should take, ignore the, one, the stuff that he should ignore. He's got to learn from that fight, figure out what he did wrong, and how to improve and 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 why and and move on from here he's still very very young and he lost to a very very good boxer and he can still mix it in the top echelons of the sport but he has to really want to make the sacrifices and changes he needs to and to recognize that sometimes it's on him and he doesn't want to and we've talked about this before he doesn't want to get into this oscar de la hoya thing of 
sticking with a trainer for a couple of fights and then as soon as something goes wrong going somewhere else yeah. it's it, it's just not helpful um anyway look we've got a busy news undercard so we'll break that into two parts uh let's first of all do the items that are not about fights being signed um and a couple of more legal issues here deontay wilder was arrested early Tuesday in Los Angeles for possession of a concealed weapon. He was pulled over and a nine millimeter was found in his vehicle. He was released on bond with a charge classified as a felony. A different sort of legal news item, a California jury ruled in favor of Paradigm Sports Management in its breach of contract case against Manny Pacquiao, stemming from Pacquiao accepting money from Paradigm in 2021, but not working with them. He's being ordered to repay the $3.3 million advance plus $1.8 million in damages. Um, some major contract extension news. Uh, Matchroom and DAZN have re-inked for three years, taking the promoter and streamer through 2026. That's a minor contract news. Uh, top rank has signed lightweight contender Jermaine Ortiz and plans to have him fight on June 10th on the Joss Taylor Tiafimo Lopez undercard. And finally, Steve Crocodile Fitch, who is the loudest of the various Mike Tyson hangers on for parts of his career. He's the guy who would walk to the ring behind Tyson screaming, Guerrilla Warfare! Over and over, has reportedly passed away, uh, according to a tweet from the Cronk Gym. Eric, thoughts on any of these items? Yeah, uh, some of my thoughts will be brief. Um, Crocodile Fitch, colorful character. Um, I, I never met him, but I, I can hear his voice in my head. Yeah. Uh, and and great nickname, you know? Like, if, if he was just Steve Fitch, I'm not sure whether <laughs> I would or wouldn't remember him the instant that yeah. I hear his name, but Crocodile Fitch, that's good branding. Uh, but anyway, yeah, condolences uh, certainly to his family and friends. Um, Jermaine Ortiz, uh, good signing. He's, he's a quality young fighter, and, and top rank has several of the top lightweights, so he was a fine opponent for Lomachenko last year, and he'll be a fine opponent for another top lightweight or junior welterweight soon. Matchroom and DAZN, it makes sense. It doesn't seem mm. like there was much doubt this would happen for, you know, for as long as DAZN is going to stay in boxing, they need a big promoter with a deep stable. ESPN has top rank, Showtime has PBC. DAZN has matchroom. Uh, the Pacquiao thing, I don't like this outcome, not because it wasn't a correct and fair outcome, but because I worry about Pacquiao's finances. Yep. And in yep. turn, I worry about him fighting again and, you know, not just yep. exhibitions, which mm, kind of OK with those, but really returning to boxing. Yeah, the your Dennis Ugas fight told us what we needed to know about his ability to compete at the top level and his ability to fight f full 12 rounds and fight full three minute rounds and more time has passed since then and he's older he's been inactive i just don't like to see these guys keep fighting beyond a certain point and we've heard rumors about a pacquiao connor ben fight possibly yeah. being in the works ben is young he's strong uh, artificially perhaps <laughs> uh I mean, look, maybe Manny wins that, but I really would prefer not to find out. And uh, a $5.1 million payment to Paradigm Sports Management increases the likelihood of yes. Manny seeking a payday from boxing. Uh, the Wilder thing, it's probably not going to turn into anything major. It's not firing the gun. It's not owning a gun yeah. illegally. He reportedly got pulled over uh, in his Rolls Royce, I'll note, um, for having illegally tinted windows and an obstructed license plate. Uh, and then the cops found the gun and some weed. I can't imagine much will come of it. Uh, Wilder tweeted afterward, I'd rather be safe than sorry, the end. 
we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of statistics yep. and debating whether possession of a gun makes you more safe or less safe. Um, we could also leap to all sorts of conclusions about the cop's intentions in pulling the car and over. Days. In the end, nobody got hurt. I don't see this impacting Deontay's boxing plans at all. I will say he's 37 years old and has fought once in the last year and a half, and he has nothing scheduled right now. If he doesn't fight until this possible Saudi fight with AJ in December, that's some serious inactivity. So that's uh, this is all a little concerning on that front. But otherwise, I don't see it blowing up into anything more than what it is right now. Um, but let's uh, transition from a guy who hasn't been fighting enough to some news about actual fights on tap. Uh, Top Rank won the purse bid for Arthur Betterbiev's mandatory light heavyweight title defense against Callum Smith. That's expected to happen this summer in either Montreal or Quebec City with ESPN televising. Jaime Munguia's next bout is set. It'll be June 10th, up at 168 pounds against veteran middleweight contender Sergei Drevyanchenko, who is also moving up in weight. Uh, one of the top female fighters in the world, Amanda Serrano, has signed for a rematch with Heather Hardy, whom she defeated handily in 2019. That'll be the August 5th co-feature to Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz. We have Jared Big Baby Anderson's opponent for his homecoming fight in Toledo, Ohio on July 1st. It'll be Kazakh Southpaw Jean Kasabutsky, who brings in an impressive record of 19-0, 18 KOs. And lastly, another fight has reportedly been added to the Showtime schedule on August 5th at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Veterans Arislandi Lara and Danny Garcia collide at what is said to be a 155-pound catchweight. And Michael Zarafa, Lara's mandatory challenger who stepped aside, will appear on the undercard with the expectation that he'll get the Lara Garcia winner next. Kieran, what stands out to you among these fights? So a couple of these are fights that I like, but probably would have liked to more a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, uh, Better BF Smith is one of those. I, I think it's a good, tough challenge for Better BF. But I would have liked it more before Smith kind of got broken by Canelo or struggled with John Ryder. I would have thought it was a, a, a more interesting and even matchup. Uh, that said, perfectly fine fight. There's absolutely a chance of an upset, but the A side, I think, is, is pretty clear and, and probably clearer than it might have been a couple of years back. And I, I feel a little bit the same about Mungia Derevianchenko. On paper, I think it should be Mungia's toughest test so far, which admittedly isn't saying a terrible amount, but it just kind of feels as if the hard fights have been catching up to Derevianchenko. Uh, he fell controversially short against Golovkin, short but not really controversially show against Charlo, and a bit farther away against Adames. And, yeah. and maybe that doesn't mean anything for this fight. Maybe it just means he can't beat the best, but is still perfectly capable of beating the likes of Mungia. Uh, but again, I think I might have liked it uh, a couple of years ago, somewhat more. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I would ever have been a fan of Lara Garcia. It feels like a strange matchup. Um, and obviously we'll dive into it more closer to the time. Um, but maybe this will actually be more interesting now than it would have been because Lara is less elusive than he was. Right. And he is a bit more interesting to watch. So perhaps, even though it doesn't do really anything for me, perhaps it's at least going to be more fun. Um, and as for Serrano Hardy, like you said, it was a fight we, we saw a couple of years ago and was was quite clear who the winner was. My first thought was, why bother? Because, as you said, Serrano did win handily the first time out. But Hardy hasn't gotten any worse that I can see. She might have possibly slightly improved. And we have, as we've discussed, at the first inklings of a slight possible thinking of a consideration about perhaps possibly Serrano is beginning to decline a little bit. <laughs> um, 
So this could be a bit closer than last time around. That said, I'm a big Heather Hardy stand, but I just I just don't see her having enough for really any version of Amanda Serrano, to be honest. Yeah, agreed. All righty. Let's change things up a little bit and uh, get your pens and pencils and paper or whatever note-taking equipment that you use uh, at the ready there, Eric. It is time for another episode of The Fight Game. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, as I indicated to you before we started recording, unconvinced by the quality of my clues this time around. So <laughs> they might be brilliant, they might be horrible, but I always feel like I'm always doing some kind of qualification or caveat before these. So, Well, if, if they suck, we'll blame Kiernan. Yes, there you go. Exactly. That sounds that sounds perfectly valid. All righty. <clears throat> Him. All right. <laughs> Clue number one. Yes. This fight was the second attempt by a future Hall of Famer to win a world title belt. The first attempt ended in failure, and so did this one. Okay. So he did not succeed in getting in winning his world title challenge in either his first or his second attempt. Hmm. Time frame pretty wide open here. Um, hmm. Trying to think of someone who succeeded on the third try. I'm assuming that eventually this person succeeded or they would likely not be a Hall of Famer. Uh, I will just throw this out there because I think think he won a world title on his third try and it was the world heavyweight title and i'm thinking of jersey joe walcott who eventually won it from ezard charles i believe so that'll be my guess that i throw out here it is incorrect sir okay (laughs) i like the dramatic pause there i thought i had a chance for just a second (laughs) um uh the second clue kind of clarifies some of your thinking here um he did however succeed at his third attempt which was a rematch of this fight. Mm, Okay. That does give me more information. Okay, so this person tried to win a world title, failed, got another try, failed, but then succeeded in his third try against the guy he had failed against in the second try. Hmm. So this is likely to be one of those situations where I probably don't come up with a guess at all unless it occurs to me while hemming and hawing because it has to be a pretty specific said it has to fit all these specifics uh, or else I know it's incorrect. And so I'm just stalling for a moment to see if I can think of someone who I know won a title in the third try against the same guy he failed against in his second try. Nothing's coming to me. So let's go on to clue three. All right. And, and this is, this is where, you know, you, you might begin to go, aha, most observers felt he should have won this fight too, even though he was knocked down, not once, but twice. But an important clarification, although our Hall of Famer didn't win this fight, he didn't lose it either. Okay, okay, wait. Okay, now I'm both sort of Getting a clearer picture and getting confused. So uh, let me. Okay. So the the fight. There are two that, separate points in this. Right, right, right. So the the fight that I'm actually guessing is the second. This was so I'm I, and and this is correct. I just mixed it up a little in my mind, but you clear. So it's the second fight where he failed is the fight correct. that I'm guessing. 
You are um, correct. And, and he arguably should have won this fight. He was knocked down twice in the fight and obviously yes. ended up with a draw, is what you are saying. Yes, that is exactly correct. Okay, so who was not... Ah, uh, I think maybe I've got it. I can't okay. remember if this person had a previous attempt at a title, but I, if it's the right answer, I guess he did. I'm going to say, was this the Sergio Martinez-Paul Williams first of their two fights? It was not. Oh. But was that a... You know what? Now I think about it, I don't think that was a draw. I think maybe Martinez lost a controversial decision. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yes. And and I'm not sure whether he had had a previous title challenge that failed against somebody anyway. So, uh, all right. Let's go on to clue four then. Perhaps the thin air in the mountainous country where this fight was held and where our Hall of Famous opponent was from played a role in making this such a difficult night. When they met again in the United States five months later, it was an entirely different fight. Okay, so my mind immediately goes to Mexico having thin air in parts of it, which I know mostly because there was recently a Major League Baseball game played there where there were lots of home runs because it was thin air and a tiny ballpark. Um, I don't know if it is Mexico, but I'll go along with that thinking for a moment. Uh, so the the person that they failed to win it from would have then been a Mexican fighting in Mexico. They got a draw. Like I remember Bernard Hopkins got a draw against. Oh, OK. That was, <laughs> that was his second attempt. I was about to say got a draw, but it wasn't his second. But did he challenge for a title before that? But he did because he challenged Roy Jones. And lost, and then in his second attempt, got a draw against Segundo Mercado in Ecuador, and that must be the answer. That is the answer. Okay. I got there eventually. <laughs> and, and clue number five would have been, once he did execute victory in what one might call the Segundo fight with this opponent, our <laughs> Hall of Famer didn't relinquish it for a decade, an almost alien achievement. <laughs> Okay, yes, giving it all away. Although I will say with the not with the two of us, but with a knowledgeable but perhaps younger boxing journalist who, you know, if you've only been on the beat for five, ten years or something like that, you may have no clue who Bernard Hopkins beat to win his first title. That could have that that one, even with at all spelled out, even with Segundo sort of in there, there are some people who may have been even stumped on clue five there, but uh, yeah, I mean, this was definitely a fight that, yeah, it was December 17th, 1994 when neither of us were covering the sport, but both quite actively into it. And, and Bernard was coming up and obviously it was a fight that Bernard talked about endlessly. Right. Um, so uh, if you talk to him at all, sort of in the <laughs> early, early century, he, uh, you would have heard about it. So right. yes, uh, it's a, a little obscure unless you were sort of round and paying attention at that time. Right. And I, uh, well, I learned something new. I was not aware that Ecuador has thin air. Now I, now I am armed with extra knowledge. Yeah, it, it's, Quito is uh, um, like 9,000 feet. It's almost twice as high. Uh, the, the elevation's almost twice as high as uh, Denver. Hmm. All right. And parts of it, not all parts of it are, but the Andes goes through um, Ecuador. And I think there's an active volcano right next to, to Quito. And so there you go. And Bernard blamed it all on the, the bad <laughs> scoring and the altitude, of course. And the active volcano nearby. <laughs> Probably. 
Yes, exactly. All right. We are getting deep into the podcast and we still haven't previewed this coming weekend's live Showtime Championship Boxing Triple Header. So let's do that, shall yes. we? Um, Saturday night, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. From the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, it's an all-super lightweight card. In the main event, Raleigh Romero fights for the first time in 11 and a half months since his KO loss to Tank Davis. Uh, he was originally scheduled to take on Alberto Pueyo, but Pueyo is out after a positive test for clomiphene last month, and replacing him is Ismael Barroso. Uh, Barroso has fought once on Showtime before, on Showbox in 2015. He's from Venezuela. He lives in Miami. He's a southpaw. He can punch hard, as his record of 24-3-2 with 22 KOs makes clear. But perhaps the headline stat with Barroso is his age. He's 40. Um, Raleigh Romero, 14 and one with 12 KOs, is moving up in weight here from 135 to 140 pounds. Um, Eric, how tough a test does this look to be for Romero coming off a loss and a, a layoff? What are you hoping to see from Raleigh? And I make your pick. Do you expect him to get the win or are you predicting a second straight defeat here? So uh, Steve Farhood asked an interesting question in his notes he distributed on this fight. What happens if Romero loses? Is he going to be a lower level Adrian mm. Broner? Um, it's a, a fair potential comparison. Um, brash personality, rubs people the wrong way, makes for a popular villain, talented, <laughs> but not necessarily to an elite level. And um, we shall see if once the losing starts, the losing continues. Um he did fight fairly well against Javante until he got caught, and Javante is Javante, so it's not a bad loss at all. It didn't lower my estimation of Raleigh one bit, but he can't afford to lose again in his very next fight against Ismail Barroso, who is a solid guy, but as you noted, he's 40 years old, and for what it's worth, he looks 40. Uh, talk about aging like milk. Um, as, <laughs> as a boxer, though, he's aging just fine. Uh, he's won his last four fights, including one that that I would uh, call a meaningful win, a close one over Yves Ulysse Jr. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, if Raleigh loses this one, it's a major setback. Barroso, as you said, he's a southpaw, and his game plan is mostly to fight at distance and try to land his powerful left hand. He's very straight up and down. It's almost all one-twos. In terms of athleticism and versatility of attack, Romero has clear advantages here. And Romero probably won't be bothered by the southpaw stance. His best win came against lefty Anthony Yigit. And uh, like I said, he, he was doing okay against lefty Tank Davis. So, yes, Raleigh is coming off a loss and a long layoff. Anything can happen, especially when he's in against a puncher. But I don't think Barroso is the stiffest of tests. A credible opponent, but someone I expect Raleigh to beat and most likely to knock out. So that's what I'm picking. Um, I, I will note that I'm leading... 41 to 38 right now. Uh, the difference in our scores being my getting the exact round of the Davis Garcia knockout. That's the whole difference right there. And here I've got Raleigh maybe needing a few rounds to get comfortable, maybe taking a couple of scary left hands, but before long settling in and landing his power shots and Barroso just a little too easy to hit. Uh, maybe Raleigh goes to the body to help Barroso show his age. Uh, Barroso once got stopped in round seven and once got stopped in round nine. I'll say Romero splits the difference and scores an eighth round KO. How about you? What's your pick here? Wildly divergent. Wildly. <laughs> All right. So it's either a KO seven or a KO nine. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, Barroso, he's kind of an aggressive fighter. Like you said, he kind of sits on that half distance and just throws these hard right jabs and hooks and 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 that big left hand um 
he doesn't seem to be one to really feel out his opponents. He likes to get going uh, from the first bell, and that could create problems for Raleigh, but it could also create opportunities. He does square up a bit as he throws the Sparoso. There's an opening there to punch between his punches. Um, there are a few things that are going to work in Romero's favor more than an exchange of power punches. Uh, he isn't going to have to go looking for a Barroso, which he'll enjoy. Uh, this fight isn't going the distance. Um, Romero's seen the final bell just twice in 15 fights. Barroso just five times in 29. Might be a bit scrappy at first. Um, I think it'll develop into an exciting back and forth. But by about round four, I think we'll see Raleigh's heavy punches starting to take their toll. And I think we'll just see Barroso begin to cave and crumble. And Romero, I pick to break through and win by stoppage in the seventh. Nothing like my pick at all. Entirely Nothing. different. Yeah. All right. Uh, the co-feature on this card is a real crossroads fight. Uh, 23-year-old Omar Juarez, 14-1 and with five knockouts, takes on 37-year-old two-division former titleist Rancis Bartelemy. 29-2-1 with 15 KOs and one no decision. Barthelemy was stopped by Gary Antoine Russell in his last fight. Uh, Juarez is coming off a decision win over Austin Dulay, in which he prevailed despite losing three points for low blows. Kieran, tell us a little something about these fighters and tell us who you like, the aging Cuban or the young Texan. Juarez is in the stable of our new BFF, Bob Santos, who mm -hmm. co-manages him and co-trains him, along with Rick Nunez and Omar's dad, Rudy. Um, you mentioned the low blow points that he lost against Delay, and that was to some extent a function of the fact that he can court danger because he loves to land a hook to the body. That's uh, really important to him and, you know, might be an interesting feature given that he is 14 years younger than Bartholomew. Um his only loss came in 2021 to Filipino lefty Ol Rivera, who before that win actually lost the decision to Bartholomew. Um, you wonder whether the crafty Cubans' boxing moves and counterpunching will be too much for the young pressure fighter Juarez, but by the same token, you know, Bartholomew clearly has the experience. He's fought a higher level of opposition, but he hasn't prevailed against a meaningful opponent probably since his win over Kirill Relic in 2017. He then lost to Relic in an immediate rematch, had that stultifying draw with Robert Easter Jr. in 2019. And then, as you said, yeah, exactly. Just And then, as you said, stopped by Antoine Russell last year. That was his first stoppage loss. I, I don't think he'll suffer his second. But I think he will probably go down to his fourth career defeat. He, he'll feel frustrate Juarez early, perhaps outbox him, look as if he'll be on the way to a win. But I just think Juarez's energy and body attack will slow him down and, and allow Juarez to pip him at the post. But it might be a bit close by the end. And maybe at least one judge will reward Bartholomew for his early boxing work. So I'm actually going to say Juarez wins a split decision here with the judges really varying on what they like from what they see. I have a wildly different pick than you. <laughs> um, can I be uh, very biased and unprofessional and say that for boxing's sake, I hope Juarez wins. Uh, he, he's young. He's marketable. He does charity work. He's, he's a little well-spoken. Yeah. 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 And and of course, any connection to uh, our buddy Bob Santos, we root for that. Uh, whereas Bartelemy, he's nobody's idea of a great TV fighter. Um, yeah. But he is a tough out. Um, he was world class in his prime. He is past that point now, but still a tough puzzle to solve if you don't have Gary Antoine Russell's power, which Juarez does not. 
like you, I think this is going to be a highly competitive fight. We have two very different styles, but they're potentially evenly matched. And I'm just going to let my heart make my pick for me. I'm going with <laughs> Omar Juarez by decision, but I'll take a majority decision, which, which it's I, it's the least common decision and thus yes. not the highest percentage play. But, uh, you know, this is my the confidence of having a three point lead on display. I can play around a little. So I will go majority decision to your split decision. Wow. Look at us, man. We are just <laughs> on the edge here. Um, opening up the card, an intriguing matchup of boxers that we've covered in recent years. Batir Akhmedov of Uzbekistan brings in a somewhat misleading record of nine and two with eight KOs. Both of his defeats were by disputed decision. While Kenneth Sims Jr., you guys may remember, he was a guest on our podcast after he was featured in the 2020 documentary ring. So wait, was that three years ago? Good Lord. Was yep. he, he really on our show three years ago? Good heavens. And he is now 19-2-1 with seven KOs and he's unbeaten over the last four and a half years. Eric, tell us a bit more about both fighters and make your pick. Who's moving forward and who's suffering his third defeat? Uh, so, Akhmedov, let's uh, dig into his box rack a little bit. Uh, the two losses, we all remember the first of them well, mm-hmm. his very close decision loss to Mario Barrios, in which Akhmedov seemed on the way to victory, but got dropped in the 12th round. Still could have gone either way. The judges had uh, Akhmedov unfairly buried, though, already going into the 12th round. And then a split decision last August to Alberto Pueo, who was originally supposed to fight Romero in this main event. That was a real coin flip fight. I looked back at my scorecard. I had it 115-113 Pueo, but it was a which style do you like sort of thing. The, mm. the flashy counters of Pueo ended up beating the bodywork and pressure of Akhmadov. But let's also note one of Akhmadov's nine wins. In 2018, he scored a KO9 over Ismail Barroso, Raleigh <laughs> Romero's main event opponent. Uh, Akhmadov got off the canvas to win that one. Akhmadov is a southpaw. Kenneth Sims, meanwhile, is not a southpaw, but he does like to switch stances. He's been on a good run. His last four opponents had a combined record of 58, 6, and 4. Certainly the most noteworthy was Elvis Rodriguez, who Sims beat by majority eight-round decision two years ago. This is another solid matchup uh, and a clash of styles. Sims more the boxer, Akhmadov the pressure fighter. Both had strong amateur careers. One important note, this fight is scheduled for 12 rounds, and Sims Mm. has never been beyond eight. And that helps inform my pick here. I probably would have leaned toward Akhmadov anyway, but this helps me zero in on how he gets there. I'll say close fight for about six to eight rounds, but then Akhmadov comes on and takes it out of the judge's hands this time. He's not going to risk another debatable decision. I'll say the Uzbek scores a knockdown or two and forces the stoppage in round 11. Okay. Yeah, as you said, I mean, Akhmadov is a very hard luck nine and two um it does perhaps raise the question of you know which might figure into making a pick here particularly if you're gonna go the decision route is there something about the way that Akhmadov fights that means he doesn't get credit for some judges is that something to bear in mind will he need to do what you think he's going to do and score a ko to win um i saw our guy sims obviously i've got a soft spot for him following the documentary and his appearance on our podcast and i was happy that he got the result that he deserved against elvis rodriguez but that rodriguez fight does kind of stand out to me as something of an outlier um his opposition's been good as you mentioned but not fantastic and although he's continued to win against good competition it doesn't feel as if he's really taken it up a level since that rodriguez fight um whereas rodriguez actually has been doing quite well um I just think Akhmadov, while perhaps not 
top of the top tier is a level or two above our guy here. And, and, and I think his aggression and his hard punches will just prove too much for him. I, I came very close to picking an Akhmedov stoppage here. And listening to you kind of made me think, oh, I should have stuck with that. But I'm going to say that Sims does hold on to the end. But he ends up losing what, as a result of, and I agree with you here, the final third or so of the fight ends up being a very wide, unanimous decision. Okay. Uh, The rest of the fights next weekend are relatively minor. The next biggest card is on ESPN from Stockton, California, headlined by middleweights. Janabek Alim Kanuli versus Stephen Butler with a co-feature of Jason Maloney versus Vincent Astrolabio at Bantamweight. Solid fights, but the Showtime bouts obviously take priority for us. This smells like a fast-forward through them Sunday morning situation to me. Anything particularly interest you here, Kieran, or will we both just be BSing our way through 30 seconds of quote-unquote analysis on next week's pod? Oh, we're so BSing. I like uh, <laughs> I like Alan Canelli, but um, yeah, total BSing. Just, okay. <laughs> just might as well just be brutally, brutally honest about it. Right. We may not even talk about the fights. <laughs> we might not. It's either either nothing or BS. You're getting one or the other, people. <laughs> All right. For our final act this week, it is time for this week's top five assignment. Um, I'm a little surprised we actually haven't done this before, uh, possibly because it's such low-hanging fruit. We considered it too easy or beneath us or something, but nothing's too obvious for or beneath me. And so here it is. <laughs> um, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we just had a Cinco de Mayo weekend and a Cinco de Mayo fight. And my challenge to you is... Name your top five Cinco de Mayo fights this century. And I'm going to say this century because, A, I don't want you to have to troll through 100 years of box Good, rec. thank you. But also, I feel pretty confident that it's only really in this century that we've come to super associate Cinco de Mayo weekend with a big fight. I, right. I think that's right, right? Um, and I know that <clears throat> there are going to be some obvious ones, and probably three names are going to particularly stand out because three or maybe four names have dominated that, that Cinco de Mayo weekend since it really happened. Um, but feels like a mild bit of research will be required, but not a terrible amount. Uh, you can also be adventurous if you want and pick undercard fights. Like it doesn't have to be the main event if you True. look and go, oh, okay. my God, that was a fantastic fight. Um, yeah. But you don't have to. OK, no, I, I think I will. I think uh, I think undercard undercard fights should count. They're still Cinco de Mayo fights. So I, I, I will look at those. Um, but to be clear, you're asking me to rank them based on the quality of the fight, not like the size of the event. No, your criterion entirely up to you. All right. I think I will declare right now that I am going to say best fights with okay. with, but somewhat like when when naming the fight of the year, if it's close between two fights, you gotcha. go with the more significant one. The, gotcha. So significance matters. But I I think I will if you don't uh, oppose this approach, I will rank them just on like the best fights that you know. And that is better, because if the, if we're just raising ranking them on the significance, then one clearly wins. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's. That's fair enough. And then there's 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 one or two like sneaky like oh that was a good Mayo fight. That's actually uh, with some very good fights in there. So yes, okay. there you go. All right, and that opens it up as well to the undercard fights more so. <laughs> there you go. Um, so okay, I, I like this uh, low hanging fruit perhaps, but I am uh, more than willing to uh, reach up an inch or two and grab that fruit. Yeah, that, exactly. You got to sit down from box rec for a little bit of time, but not all afternoon. Right. No. Certainly not. I would I would never put all afternoon into preparing for anything for this podcast. <laughs> See, I would say the same thing, except I'd cut off the final three words. Like, 
<laughs> preparing for anything period yes uh that will do it for this episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney many thanks again to our buddy lance pugmire uh for joining us uh, we will be back next week with our post fight thoughts on the showtime championship boxing card and a look ahead to devin haney versus vasily lomachenko and katie taylor versus Chantel camera it just keeps coming this year doesn't it yeah um until then thanks as always for listening be safe be kind and be